Welcome, Star Traveler. You have boarded the USSS Renegade Files, taking you to destinations of paranormal stories, high strangeness, and in-depth, free-thinking conspiracy research. I'm your Captain Lex Gordon, pointing us to broadcast level so we can hack into the Matrix. Today, we depart from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files Episode 55, Portals, Stargates, and Wormholes. Science fiction is filled with portals that can take us to other worlds in the blink of an eye. Fantasy novels use portals as a deus ex machina to conveniently solve the real problems of interstellar travel. And sci-fi TV shows teleport the captain to the planet below so he can keep a date with the green girl. But could portals, stargates, and wormholes really exist? Is there any evidence of such phenomena? And what do the dusty books and brightest minds have to say on this subject? Follow me beyond the event horizon and let's find out. This gets weird, and that's why you and I are here. When things get weird, we get excited. It's been 221 days since our last caffeine-related accident. So if we watch each other's backs, we should be able to come out on the other side intact. After exploring the time-curved madness of portals, portals. Stargates, stargates, and wormholes. And wormholes. Portals, stargates, and wormholes. Portals, stargates, and wormholes. We came here in peace. We expect to leave in one piece. Part 1. Ancient Stargates Abu Sir is an ancient Egyptian pyramid complex located about halfway between the giant pyramids of Giza and the Steppe Pyramid at Saqqara. It is the legendary resting place of the goddess Osiris, and at that location, in the shadows of the four pyramids, is one of the oldest known archaeological sites on the planet, the site known as Abu Ghraib. At Abu Ghraib, there stands an ancient platform made of solid alabaster. The stone platforms has raised concentric circles. It displays evidence of the advanced machining and incredibly precise construction we have seen at other ancient Egyptian sites in the same area. Those who stand or sit at the center of this enormous stone platform claim to have an intense feeling of oneness with the higher, sacred energies of the universe. Many claim that this stone artifact is a stargate where we can contact the sacred energies or communicate with the gods. People say they feel as if they are standing at a doorway where beings of energy come into and out of this world and that being there gives you feelings of connection to the vast energy of the cosmos. Mainstream archaeology tells us that the large alabaster platform is actually the base of a lost obelisk, and it seems to be that. But then, we have this entire school of thought that the ancient obelisks were used as transmission and reception sites for ancient wireless energy transmission and distribution, and that's a whole other subject. The fact is, though, 
regardless of what this stone artifact was originally, people have these experiences there. Interestingly, the descriptions of what those who visit the ancient platform at Abu Ghraib feel are identical to the Cherokee Native American legends of what they call the Thought Beings. The Cherokee Thought Beings are formless entities who travel on waves of sound and arrive at specifically tuned locations here on Earth. They come to Earth from their home in the Pleiades star system. They are the star people in their pure energy forms. Moving stateside, we find a curious site located 40 feet below the chilled waves of Lake Michigan. In 2007, scientists searching for shipwrecks discovered a stone circle that looks a lot like Stonehenge and was thought to be at least 9,000 years old. Northwest Michigan University professor of underwater archaeology, Mark Hawley, found the structure with his partner Brian Abbott. One of these stones features the carved image of a mastodon, which became extinct about 10,000 years ago. This gives us an idea into the ages of the stone circle. The interesting part of the story is that the exact location of the underwater stone circle has been kept secret, in part due to an agreement with local Native American tribes who wish to keep the numbers of researchers visiting the site to a minimum. Believe me, I have the utmost respect and deepest admiration for the Native American cultures. But there are complicated questions that arise when we begin to designate or protect earthworks and artifacts in the interest of protecting the sacred histories of Native First People tribes and indigenous groups. One very real issue is who actually has the authority to prevent research into objects or structures that are found to be 10, 20, or 30,000 years old. For example, should the modern representatives of a native tribe who migrated to an area 2,000 years ago have authority over every aspect of study regarding a stone monument created in that area 9,800 years before a single one of their ancestors ever set foot in that territory? Regardless of why, the exact coordinates of the underwater stone circle under Lake Michigan's surface is not public knowledge. But rumors have been spreading for some time among Fortean seekers that this site could be the location of a stargate. Adding fuel to the speculation is the fact that several unexplained disappearances have happened in this suspected location of the circle. As far back as 1891, the schooner Thomas Hume vanished along with her seven crew members. In 1921, the entire crew of the Rosabella disappeared and the boat was found abandoned without any visible damage. In 1937, we have the mysterious case of Captain Donner. Donner was piloting the O.M. McFarland across Lake Michigan when he went to his cabin to rest after a long shift on deck. A few hours later, a mate went to wake the captain and found his cabin door locked. The mate knocked, called, then banged, and yelled, and eventually broke the locked door in and found the cabin empty. The windows were locked shut from the inside, as had been the cabin door. Captain Donner had apparently vanished into thin air. 
the overall theory is that when ships pass over this ancient stone circle that there's some kind of time-space fluctuation, causing things and people to slip through the wormhole and disappear from this dimension. Across the pond we find one of the most iconic ancient structures on Earth, the afore-referenced Stonehenge. Mainstream professors tell us that Stonehenge was constructed 5,000 years ago with stones quarried from 240 miles away. The issues here are, first, no such quarry has ever been found. An alternative research tells us that when the first British settlements were established in that area 5,000 years ago, the Stonehenge structure was already there and had been for as long as the oral tradition could recall. Mainstream archaeology also tells us that Stonehenge was built as a clock. Okay. As far as the Stargate or Portal idea, the main story surrounding this concept comes from 1971, when a group of what we would call hippies decided to camp in the center of the Stonehenge Circle in order to jive with the vibes there and connect with the cosmos. On that night, a sudden storm arose. Lightning cracked on the hilltops and police were called to the structure when screams were reported by a passerby. When the authorities arrived, they saw from a short distance the Stonehenge stones glowing blue. A local farmer also saw the stones glowing blue. When the policemen arrived on the scene, neither the hippies nor any of their gear was anywhere to be found. All that remained, a single tent stake. The campers were never found and to this day their disappearance is one of the great Stonehenge mysteries although no official documentation exists to verify the story. Jumping through the portal and now traveling to the birthplace of civilization, we come to the fertile river valley known in ancient times as Sumer. The Sumerians documented much of their daily lives and part of this record comes to us in the forms of clay seals, which are essentially pictographic scenes depicting various events. One famous Sumerian seal is that of a Sumerian god arriving in this world through a portal. The god appears on a staircase flanked by shimmering columns of water. This is interesting because there is also the story of a US military special forces soldier, I believe a navy seal, who, while remaining anonymous, claims that the reason we invaded Iraq in Operation Iraqi Freedom, also known as the Iraq War, and the successor to Operation Desert Storm, was to take control of a stargate there. We'll get into that a little deeper coming up, so stay tuned. But this person describes the stargate as being square, and the portal as being curtained with a thin veil of falling water. When you step through this thin sheet of water, you are instantly in another place. You pass through to the other side. Where exactly you go and how it all works, he doesn't really say, but it is interesting that he describes a process of passing through the portal as including a shimmering sheet of water, and this is exactly what we see depicted on the ancient Sumerian seal. We also see this in the movie Stargate, so there's that too, I guess. Another Sumerian artifact that claims to show evidence of Stargates is that of Ninurta. 
Ninurta is an ancient Mesopotamian god associated with farming, healing, hunting, law, scribes, and war, who was first worshipped in early Sumer. In the earliest record, he is a god of agriculture and healing who cures humans of sickness and releases them from the power of demons. Demons will come up later too. In one carving, we see Nintura wearing what looks to be a modern-day wristwatch while pressing a button of sorts on the wall of the gateway he's standing in. Author Elizabeth Vey has written several books on the ancient Sumerian gods and kings and their possible uses of stargates. She believes there's a stargate in the Euphrates River buried under the ruins of the lost city of Eridu for thousands of years. Vey also states that the biblical verse in chapter 9 of the book of Revelation speaks of this stargate. That verse reads, Then the fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth, and it was given the key to the pit of the abyss. The star opened the pit of the abyss, and smoke rose out of it like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the pit, and out of the smoke locusts descended on the earth. This Bible verse speaks of a star falling to earth and opening a pit to an abyss. This does tug at the ancient alien heartstrings when you start talking about stars coming to earth and opening gateways. Elizabeth Vey interprets the term abyss to mean portal, and she believes this passage to describe the stargate portal depicted in so many Sumerian records. Another object thought to be a portal to the land of the gods is the Gate of the Sun in Bolivia. This enormous stone doorway is carved from a single piece of stone and has incredibly smooth surfaces and precise right-angle corners. The Gate of the Sun is related to the sun god, Viracocha, who appeared in the ancient city of Tijuanaco and declared it to be the place of creation, meaning the place he chose to start the human race. The Gate of the Sun is said to be 14,000 years old. It's decorated with carvings that show people wearing rectangular helmets, and a central figure at the top and center looks to me moving through a doorway with his hands on the side of the door, much as you would if you were moving through a hatch on a ship. This enormous stone gateway was discovered by European explorers in the mid-1800s, lying horizontally on the jungle floor. It was assumed that the doorway had fallen over, so it's now positioned upright on a concrete foundation. The artifact stands behind a narrow wire fence, and anyone can visit it. Many people have walked through the rectangular opening, but none that we know of have been transported to another world. The true meaning and function and methodology of use for the Gate of the Sun is lost to time. In Sedona, Arizona, there is a deeply rooted legend that comes across the centuries from the earliest people to live in that region. First, the Paleo Indians migrated there from ancient Asia. Then, the Anasazi and the Hohokam moved across from 500 to 700 AD. The Navajos who live there now give us the name Anasazi, which in Navajo means those who weren't us. 
Sedona was called Nawanda and was considered a most sacred location. The Navajo and earlier legends tell us that the areas in the red desert rocks near Sedona create vortexes with the capability of transporting people to other realms or dimensions. They speak of a doorway of the gods, a stone arch portal to another time and space. In the 1950s, a local tribesman was acting as a guide for treasure hunters looking for gold in the Sedona area hills and cliffs. The guide relayed a tale of his people dating back to the 1800s when three of his tribe's scouts came upon the archway while riding horseback through the desert. He told the exploration party that one of the scouts walked through the archway and vanished before the eyes of his companions. The native guide also told them he had found the arch and on a trip to it had been caught in a sudden desert rainstorm. All the sky as far as he could see was gray with heavy clouds. But as he turned his horse to leave, he saw that the skies when viewed through the stone arch were clear blue with high white clouds. He rode closer and saw that through the archway he could see the image of the mountain range beyond and it was the exact mountain range visible on each side of the arch and the only difference within the arch was that the sky was clear blue when he looked at it in amazement. Even as the gray rain pelted his canvas riding coat and cloaked the mountains on both sides of the archway. He told the treasure hunters that only his people knew of these stories, and he had only told them because they had shown him such kindness. He warned them not to walk through the archway should they come across it. That's good stuff. Part 2. Portals in Modern Science At Princeton University in 1935, Albert Einstein, Boris Podolsky, and Nathan Rosen published one of the most famous papers ever written concerning quantum physics, the particle problem in the general theory of relativity. In the paper, Einstein argued his position that what he called spooky action at a distance was some error or anomaly yet to be explained, and he derided the idea that it was a true natural phenomenon. We now call spooky action at a distance quantum entanglement. It has been demonstrated over and over again and is generally accepted as a repeatable phenomenon in the world of quantum physics. Nathan Rosen released that paper to the New York Times without telling Einstein and the Times ran the paper with the headline, Einstein Attacks Quantum Theory which space-timed Einstein off, and even though Einstein never reconciled his dissatisfaction with the quantum world, he still didn't deserve that negative press. But let's take a look at some of what Einstein figured out just to have some background for the Portal and Stargate conversation. We won't go too deep into the world of theoretical physics and quantum mechanics, but I know some of the Renegade Files crew love these complex ideas, and this is relevant so we'll just go through the important facets real quick. For ages, Newtonian physics was a rule of the day. 
You'll recall Isaac Newton who discovered gravity when an apple fell on his head. Not sure if that's a true historical event, but he was a genius mathematician and a great astronomer of his day. The gist of Newtonian physics is that the physical objects and forces in the universe are fixed unless an equal and opposite force pushes them around, and gravity is one of these forces, so an object will remain at rest unless someone pushes it or rolls it, and by and large, this is the way the observable universe works and has worked, and for a long time, everything was cool. Einstein comes along and says that massive objects, like planets, move through a process of curving space, and in this regard, bigger things curve space more relative to smaller things, and so Einstein's view is one of relativity. Everyone knows Einstein's general theory of relativity. It's the current description of gravity in modern physics. This theory provides a unified description of gravity as a geometric property of both space and time, or what Einstein calls space-time. And space-time is considered to be a fourth dimension. At first glance, our reaction is, hey, I thought we lived in a three-dimensional world, and in regard to space, we do. So if you and I want to meet somewhere, we both have to agree on a location in three-dimensional space. So let's say that we want to meet on 17th Street, which is a line, so that's on a two-dimensional plane. And we further narrow it down to the corner of 17th Street and 33rd Avenue, which is then a specific point along the line of 17th Street, but still on a two-dimensional plane. But we don't want to be standing around on the street corner because we're going to be hanging out talking about the Illuminati and what they know about recovered alien spacecrafts, so we agree to meet instead at the rooftop bar of the Marcel building on that corner. So now we have arranged our meeting for a three-dimensional location, the line of 17th Street at the point of 33rd Avenue and the height of the rooftop bar above the two-dimensional plane of the street below. In order for us to meet up, we both have to be at that location in three-dimensional space. But if I'm there from 3 p.m. till 4 p.m., then leave because I don't see you, and you arrive from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. and do the same, then we will have both been in the exact same place in three-dimensional space, but we couldn't see each other because we were, in a very real way, in different dimensions that being the fourth dimension of time. So in order for us to meet, drink white Russians, and talk about conspiracies, we have to designate a location in four-dimensional space-time. So Einstein knew this, and he also conceived that, in the same ways physical space can be curved relative to the sizes of physical objects within it, so too is the curvature of space-time directly related to the energy and momentum of whatever matter and radiation are present. And since the speed of light is constant toward or away from an object regardless of the speed of that object through space, we find that light can also be curved 
And this leads us into that whole thing about the faster you travel through physical space, the slower you travel through time. So we get that old story about someone leaving Earth and traveling at near the speed of light to a spot two light years away, then coming back. They would arrive on Earth with themselves being only four years older, but everyone they left behind would have aged to be far older than that, and there's a complicated formula to calculate how old they would be, but we're not going to go into it. But this does beg the question, if we could travel at or near the speed of light, could we travel backwards in time? This gets into some crazy stuff, but the short answer is no. Kurt Godel calculated solutions to Einstein's equations that contain what he calls closed time-like curves, or CTCs. These allow for loops in time. But CTCs need extreme physical conditions unlikely to ever occur in real life. Also, Stephen Hawking introduced us to what's known as chronology protection conjecture which is an assumption beyond Einstein's general relativity that tells us time travel is impossible outside of microscopic scales. The Princeton Alumni Weekly has an article called A New Phase for Quantum Science at Princeton by Christopher L. Eisgrubber from March 2022, in which the author talks about those days when Einstein and his crew wandered the halls and grounds of Princeton. I thought the coolest part of the article was the explanation of quantum computing, which is a term that bounces around the internet a lot lately, but usually just as sort of a soundbite for something futuristic. But in this article, Eisgrubber explains how a quantum computer works. It uses the quantum phenomenon known as superposition, which permits a physical system to exist in a combination of two states simultaneously. In a normal computer, the bits of information are encoded as either a zero or a one, and the infinite combinations of those two characters make up the data of the computing world, and a character of binary code can only ever be one or the other, either a zero or a one. But in contrast, a quantum computer can use entangled quantum bits, or qubits, that contains superpositions of a zero state and a one state simultaneously. So they can be a zero or a one or both. By harnessing this bizarre phenomenon, quantum computers could eventually perform in seconds some tasks that would take classical computers years to complete. Now, in my mind, I immediately think, well, if the qubits are both a 1 and a 0 at the same time, then wouldn't all data be the same data? But obviously I don't fully understand how a quantum computer works, and I'm okay with that. It is interesting. But the other amazing thing is the old boys at Princeton proposed in their famous particle problem paper was this idea of the Einstein-Rosen bridge, which is a shortcut across the space-time continuum, and this is what we now call a wormhole. Wormholes theoretically connect vast distances by bending space-time to create a shortcut. And the idea is that when the universe was very young, 
So milliseconds after the Big Bang, that microscopic atom-sized wormholes were created and that when the universe expanded, so did the wormholes. And so now, these connections still have an opening on both sides and all we need to do is fold space-time in such a way that the entrances line up, then we could jump across light years of distance in just a short drive. This is still theoretical physics, mind you, but let's remember that everything else in the paper those guys wrote in 1935 has proven, so far, to be exactly accurate. But even if the wormholes do exist, aligning and opening them to shortcut across the galaxy in any practical or meaningful way would require more energy than the entire sum of energy ever created or released on Earth since it formed. But energy is an interesting thing. This makes me think of Nassim Haramin's infinity in the bounded state and the energy within the vacuum. But that's also an entirely different subject, and we will get into his ideas in a podcast episode soon. So according to Einstein and Hawking, and a bunch of others on their levels, it seems like time travel is out. But we already saw how we can be in two different dimensions with our rooftop bar meeting example. So the questions surrounding wormholes and portals seem to be not focused on traipsing through time, but traveling across and between other dimensions and vast distances. To do that, huge amounts of energy are required. But even if we had the energy and the ability to fold time-space, where would we go? What would we do when we got to some other planet 173 light-years away? How would we get back? These are the fun questions that we could get into at the Marcel Building rooftop bar. Now, this brings us to the realization that there is one facility we know of that produces enormous amounts of energy. Yep, CERN. We talked about CERN in our previous episode on occult magic and modern science. The Large Hadron Collider at CERN is circular, has a circumference of 17 miles, and uses about 200 million watts when they fire it up. When it's running, it seems to affect the weather above it and photographers have captured images of lightning being cultivated into the center of the collider ring when no other storms are visible for miles. And this thing is deep underground, 175 meters below the surface. When you look at the entrance to the collider supply line, it certainly looks like some kind of portal. It doesn't help that the CERN logo looks like a 666, and that they have at least one high-profile pop culture satanic sacrifice ritual performed at their facility as a joke that they can call their own. A casual internet search or even a somewhat thorough dive into the question of CERN opening a portal will only yield a long list of debunking sites rehashing the same four or five paragraphs and saying that this portal thing with CERN is an internet conspiracy theory with no evidence. But one CERN physicist, Mir Faisal, that's M-I-R-F-A-I-Z-A-L, has said, when speaking of the collider experiment he was part of, quote, Just as many parallel sheets of paper, which are two-dimensional objects, can exist during a dimension of height, Parallel universes can even exist in higher dimensions. If successful, a very new universe is going to be exposed, 
modifying completely not only the physics books but the philosophy books too. It is even probable that gravity from our own universe may transfer into this parallel universe. If we do detect many black holes at this energy, then we are going to know that additional dimensions are correct. End quote. So he's saying that if their experiment is successful, so it's what they're trying to do, that a new parallel universe will be exposed and gravity from our own universe may transfer into this parallel universe. Okay, so people wonder where the conspiracy theories about CERN opening portals come from? Maybe from CERN scientists saying that they're trying to open a portal to a parallel universe that might suck our gravity into it, at least if their experiment is successful. I will give a disclaimer on my source for that passage just to keep it real. Those mere Faisal quotes come from an article on Skywatch TV, and I have no reason to doubt the honesty of Skywatch, even though it tends to lean into far heavier Christian faith territory than I normally explore. For example, the terms God, Church, or Jesus Christ appear in 12 of the company's 12 core beliefs. And this is listed on their about page. Not that that's an automatically negative thing, it just feels a little zealous. It doesn't mean the quotes aren't real, and the quotes are also cited there from another article at sciencenatures.com called Researchers at Large Hadron Collider from October 2020. But that article seems to have been taken down since then. I always try to confirm sources and cross-reference information whenever I can, so I just wanted to point out the source here. So, portals to other dimensions may exist, but Renegade Files does exist, and it does so thanks to the cool people who are Renegade Files agents on Patreon. You can be an RFA agent for a full week for free, and you can help me keep making episodes for less than you would tip a server for a single meal out. As an RFA agent, you help crowdfund the show by chipping in a tiny amount, and in return you get bonus episodes, the dark intel files, help the show stay ad-free, and much more. So join our thriving community of like-minded weirdos by becoming an RFA agent at patreon.com slash renegadefiles. Check it out totally free for a week. Just tap the link in the show notes. Do it now and I'll see you in there. Cool, thanks. Part 3. The Old World Meets the New So far we've talked about a few of the ancient stargates. There are many more, but in general, these are locations described by the ancient indigenous peoples as portals to other worlds. Then we went over some of the theoretical physics which tells us that wormholes to other parts of the universe may very well be artifacts of the chaos generated by the Big Bang. Now we come to a modern location with ancient roots where the locals tell a very captivating tale. In Chihuahua, Mexico, which is in the northern central Mexican hill country, there stands the remains of an age-old city known as Casas Grandes. This very well-preserved system of stone structures lies in the shadows of the Sierra Madre Occidental mountain range 
and dates to around 1200 AD. Only part of the original city is left, but even that contains over 2,000 rooms, houses, and structures. It is said to have housed over 10,000 people at its peak, and consisted of walled plazas, markets, craftsmen's storefronts, multi-story houses, and an intricate sewage and water system. The ancient city is unique because it seems to blend elements of Pueblo, Aztec, and Sierra Madre cultures. But then, for reasons unknown, the population of the city rapidly declined, and by the end of the 1500s was abandoned. The inhabitants are believed to have been the Tarahumara, or the first peoples of that area of northern Mexico. The Tarahumara now live high among the cliffs of the Sierra Madres, and they believe Casas Grandes, the abandoned city, to be a sacred place. They say that it is the location of a portal where visitors from outer space, those whom they call the Star People, pass into and out of our world, not just for centuries and in antiquity, but still to this very day. This is part of the Star People, spoken of in the Native American traditions as well, and for a dive into that topic, check out Renegade Files episode 36, Native American Aliens and Wild West UFOs. There is so much great information and insight in that episode, so give it a listen if you haven't, or share it with a friend if you've already heard it. On Spotify, you can go to the episode, then just click the share icon, which is the box with the up arrow. Then you can send the link to social media or in a text or email. It's easy and it's a kind of new feature, so try it out. That's Renegade Files episode 36, Native American Aliens and Wild West UFOs. Thank you. The Tarahumara say the star people who come into and out of the portals at Casas Grandes are tall, blonde, and white, and that they pass into the world through doorways in the ruins. The doorways spoken of by the Tarahumara are curiously shaped. They have a narrow pass through at ground level, then they widen throughout the middle section, then at the top, The openings form an open space at what would normally be a solid header. This gives the doorways a strange wide T-shape with a narrow open tab at the bottom. What's interesting is that we see this same unusual doorway shape at another location 4,000 miles away in Peru. High in the Andes Mountains, we find this same shaped doorway also carved into solid stone, and there it's called the Doorway of Amaramuru, or the Gate of the Gods. It's thought to have been constructed by the Incans. We talked about this Gate of the Gods in Renegade Files episode 44, Out of Place Artifacts, because legend tells us that the gate can be opened using a golden disc that fell from the sky and is now lost. Many discs have been found in the area, and it seems that they were made by those trying to either copy the disc that fell from the sky, or open the door, or both. Some of them also look like machinery cogs or sprockets, and the fact that they were made at an ancient time before such machinery is what earned those objects a spot in our Out of Place Artifacts episode, 
episode 44. Check it out. Check it out. <laughs> Peruvian shamans tell us that the doorway of Amaramuru is still an active portal that transports beings into and out of this world. These beings are described as tall, blonde, and white. The exact description given by the Tarahumara in the Sierra Madres, 4,000 miles away. Okay, so now we come to one of those conspiracy theories that falls into the old so crazy it just might be true camp. This theory combines the American military and alien tech in ways that some just find hard to resist. These concepts center around the first Gulf War, officially started on August 2 with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, which led to the United States launching Operation Desert Storm on 17 January 1991, and the second Gulf War with Operation Iraqi Freedom, which started on 20 March 2003. We hinted at this earlier, but before we dive into the more speculative conspiracy territory, let me first say that both of these wars involved very real people on both sides who lost their lives and sacrificed their time and comfort and sanity and life and limb in the service of their countries. And thank you to all who have served in the U.S. military in the defense and protection of our great nation. And I send thoughts of peace to those who fought and failed to return, and compassion to their friends and their families. I just wanted to make that clear before we jump in speculating about that area and that time frame. So there's a lot going on here. We know that Iraq occupies what was once Sumer, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and this has been called the birthplace of civilization through the Sumerian culture which gave us the first writing, agriculture, beer, and if you believe Zechariah Sitchin was also home to the Anunnaki who came to earth from Nibiru to mine gold to repair their atmosphere and bred with early earth hominid species to give us modern humans and advanced technologies. This was the backdrop when America sent soldiers into the area to stop Saddam Hussein from using the weapons of mass destruction that George W. said they had. And as it turns out, that wasn't exactly true, but we went anyway. The shaky official reason for attacking Iraq the second time, in contrast to the actual reasons, could fill an entire Renegade Files episode. And not only is there a long list of geopolitical, economic, commercial, and monetary reasons outside of the imaginary weapons of mass destruction we were told that Iraq had, there was also footage of soldiers storming Iraqi museums and leaving with countless artifacts that many said included ancient sacred and magical texts and powerful objects. Even back then, people were speculating that these museums were the real targets of the invasion. And just on a personal note, I remember watching the news back then in the months leading up to the second Iraq war. We all knew they were going. We were just watching them make their case in the media before doing it. And I remember how they illustrated to us this idea that W kept repeating about weapons of mass destruction. 
which we all took as code for nuclear warheads. What they did on the mainstream news was repeat one video they had of a single missile being rolled on a trailer between two warehouses. That one missile in the same 20 second video clip was shown over and over on what amounts to a loop for weeks, with George W's soundbite echoing across the audio every time, or talking heads repeating what he had said. So that's how you convince the masses that a country has a thousand nuclear missiles. You show them one missile a thousand times. I'm not saying Saddam was a good guy or that Operation Iraqi Freedom was devoid of all merit, but they did show one missile over and over for weeks, and it felt exactly like the propaganda it was, even then in real time. The point is, even as we were mobilizing to go into Iraq again in 2003, people knew it was about more than the official reasons being given. As near as I can tell, what happened was that after Desert Storm, some of the troops on the ground in Iraq came back and among them and their fellow soldiers here in the States, rumors began to spread that Saddam Hussein and his forces had somehow gotten their hands on, to use a current term, exotic technologies. So some kind or kinds of advanced weaponry or transportation tech. And the stories were that these artifacts had been obtained through Iraq's discovery of one or more important ancient sites where extraterrestrials had left whatever this stuff was behind. Then what happened was that Saddam used what the Iraqis had figured out was a stargate to either travel to or communicate with extraterrestrials and that Somehow he had obtained from them some powerful new class of technology that could be used to create some sort of super weapon. It's possible, and yes, I know this is a leap, but bear with me here. It's possible that this is the reason George W. Bush never specifically said that Iraq had nukes, but only that they had weapons of mass destruction. Is it possible that this vague terminology was a way to conceal the fact that Saddam had alien technology? And that's what they were really worried about. So the U.S. goes in, finds Saddam, and grabs the tech. As they say on Ancient Aliens, what if it were true? The overall work of Zechariah Sitchin, which consisted of interpreting thousands of Sumerian cuneiform clay tablets and reliefs, is really not in conflict with mainstream historians when it comes to Sitchin's intellectual translations of the tablets. Sitchin's literal translations of the Sumerian stories don't really conflict with the literal translations of establishment archaeologists. The difference comes in the ways that Sitchin interprets these translations. Mainstream scholars read the Sumerian stories as myth, the Sumerians were documenting their fables and beliefs about their gods, but Sitchin argues that these stories are the literal historical truth about beings coming to Earth. Without Sitchin, there is no ancient alien hypothesis as we know it. Almost overnight, the Sumerians developed detailed knowledge of the planets in the solar system, the procession of the equinoxes, complex medical procedures, crop rotation, irrigation, divisions of labor, agriculture, and commerce. 
According to the Sumerians' own writing, all of this knowledge was given to them by the Anunnaki, which means those who from heaven to earth came. So mainstream historians say this was just myth, and Sitchin says no, this was an historical record. But how does this lead to a stargate controlled by Saddam in pre-war Iraq? At this point enters Michael Sala, who is a ufologist and exopolitics proponent, and you can look into his work at michaelsala.com as well as exopolitics.org and decide what you think about all that. But much of the Stargate and Iraq theory comes directly from Sala, and he cites the deep cooperation of Saddam's Iraq with scientists from France and Germany as his main evidence for believing that Saddam had a Stargate. His evidence goes like this. Saddam cooperated with French and German scientists, so Saddam must have had a Stargate. (laughs) Right? But just because Salah's hard evidence is far less impactful than is his dedication, passion for the subjects of high strangers, and obvious hard work, doesn't mean he isn't on to something. This gets really weird, so hang in there because we're going to tie it all together right now. Hang on, here we go. When we look at the work of researchers into Sumerian mythology, both traditional archaeologists and ancient alien theorists alike, they all give us a big dose of the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki are the rock stars of that scene, but they aren't the only important figures from those ancient traditions. There is one entity from Sumerian mythology known as Tiamat. In the ancient accounts, the powerful goddess Tiamat served as both a gateway to a parallel reality, and she was also known as the creator of all demons. Tiamat is a shape-shifting primordial goddess of the salt sea who mated with Abzu, the god of fresh water, to produce the younger gods, and she is the symbol of the chaos of primordial creation. This is a serious idea because it speaks to a possible supernatural reason for the age-old and continual unrest in the region of the Middle East. Tiamat is a central figure in the Sumerian creation myth. She is the ruler of the primordial sea from which the ensuing gods and goddesses were born. As such, she is also the creator of many other things, and when you open up the Pandora's box of life, you can also get bad things along with the good. We see this time and time again. Many ancient Middle Eastern traditions tell us that the source of all dangerous paranormal activity is either demonic or comes from the jinn, J-I-N-N, an invisible race of immortal and powerful human-like specters. Gordo on Those Conspiracy Guys podcast gets into the legends of the jinn on more than one episode, and I know it's a subject that interests him too. It seems like no coincidence that the goddess Tiamat, the creator of all demons, comes from the same geographical location as the Middle Eastern Jinn, who get credit for all paranormal evil not expressly attributed to full-blown demons, and all of this in an area that has been war-torn and divided for what is, essentially, its entire history. 
And here's where this gets really weird. One theory is that Iraq is the home to an actual Einstein-Rosen bridge, or in other words, a wormhole entrance, a stargate. Some interpretations of Tiamat giving birth to both gods and demons who walk the earth conclude that the Sumerian word for birth was also their word for arrival. And so it is thought that the goddess Tiamat was actually the personification of this Einstein-Rosen bridge, an actual wormhole doorway through which demons of the ancient world pass through upon their arrival here on Earth, this being the birth given by Tiamat, the personification of the Einstein-Rosen bridge. And just in case this isn't deep enough, I also learned while doing this research that Tiamat is not only the ancient Sumerian goddess of creation and the portal for all demons, but that Tiamat was also the name of a hypothesized planet thought once to have existed between Mars and Jupiter. The planet Tiamat, some suggest, was destroyed with a previous pass-by of the planet Nibiru, which brings us back to Sitchin and his rogue planet X. And now, the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter is made up of the remains from the destroyed planet Tiamat. My summary. Alright, alright. Once again, we find ourselves near the end of a pretty long episode, so thanks for diving deep with me on this one. This is a subject that pulls on our imaginations because we'd all like to be able to teleport across the galaxy to a cool planet, hang out with some green chicks, and party at Milliways, the bar at the end of the universe. For me, the most interesting ideas about portals and wormholes come from the work of the quantum physicists who are finding things like entanglement and superpositions and the relatively simple concepts like Einstein's space-time fourth dimension. There's a long history of strange artifacts and UFOs in the Middle East, so it is possible that Saddam had some exotic tech we wanted. That's also the land of the jinn, and I tend to give those legends a wide berth and a big dose of respect. There's just some things you don't mess with. Maybe CERN could take a tip from that. CERN pushes the envelope at super high voltages, and who's really in charge there? I look at those pictures of the collider and the mechanisms at CERN and I can't help but imagine some fringe but genius scientist bursting through the doors in a white lab coat yelling, shut it down, shut it down. And of course, by scientist, I mean that guy who always wears a white lab coat and lives in a van along the river between the city boat ramp and Mulligan's beach house. The idea of an ancient Sumerian goddess being the creator of all demons and the personification of the stargate they come through to assault our world from their arrival into the area where we, as a species, have been at war for thousands of years has some weight to it as far as I'm concerned. Sam Tripoli on the Tinfoil Hat podcast points out that some areas of the planet are just more haunted than others, and this may be one of those spots. In the end, this is a subject and an episode that leaves us with more questions than answers, and that's okay sometimes. The hard evidence and physical reality of an actual stargate, 
or a portal to a parallel universe is still an unsolved mystery for the general public. Do such devices exist? Maybe so. Locked away behind the rolling hangar doors and deep underground at Area 51? Or maybe surrounded by sandstone walls and armed guards in the green zone of Iraq? For now, we'll just have to travel the multiverse, alternate dimensions, and across the galaxies through explorations of thought, research, imagination, and conversations like this one. Thank you sincerely, and I hope you had a good time diving through the wormholes with me today. If you like these episodes, you can get bonus episodes at patreon.com slash renegadefiles where you can become an RFA agent and connect with me and other agents while keeping the show ad-free for everyone. Tap the Patreon link in the show notes. It's free for a week and I'll see you in there. Thank you. On Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a five-star review if you think we deserve it, which helps the show find new listeners. Thank you. Until we dive through the next Stargate, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, Aradia child. 